0: This week and last week we've had uh, similar videos, both of them uh, kind of dealing with this funny topic of of immature faith. But for some of us, maybe they've hit a little close to home because we realize that uh, even though it's funny on screen, it's kind of not so funny when it's a reality for us that this is where our faith is at, that at some point our faith, uh, we just stopped growing and we just stopped maturing. At some point we reached a level where we honestly stopped expecting more of ourselves and more of our spiritual lives. And uh, we reached this level of maturity and for some of us it was higher, for some of us it was a little lower. And uh, We reached this level where we just refused to move on, we refused to do something different. So last week we looked at some marks of immaturity and and you can go back and see that message or hear that message from uh, Hebrews chapter 5, the very end of that chapter. And uh, this week we're going to move on uh, to Hebrews chapter 6. And last week we looked at those marks of immaturity. And uh, for some of you, uh, the message this morning is very clear. Actually for all of us, the message is very clear this morning that it is time to move on to maturity. It's time to move on. It's time to grow up. It's time to leave our comfort zones and our places uh, that we're uh, comfortable in. And it's time that we mature and and become maturing adults. And it's time that we stop expecting more of our children and their faith than we expect of our own faith. And we're we're truly honest. That sounds harsh to say, but the reality is that some of us are expecting more of our kids and growing in their faith than we are for ourselves. We bring our kids to a one and we expect them to memorize scripture, but we're not doing it ourselves. We bring them to a gospel project, but we don't do it ourselves. We expect them to read their Bible and say their prayers, but we're not doing it ourselves. We're expecting more of our kids than we are ourselves. And so for some of us, it's time that our, our faith moves out of kindergarten, moves out of the t-ball leagues and into the big leagues. And I'm not saying that you have to go to seminary and I'm not saying that you need a doctorate degree in theology, but it's time to move on from where we are at this moment. And so if you're waiting for this thunderous, booming sign from heaven that it's time to move on, it's not going to come through this booming, audible voice that you may be looking for, but it's going to come very very clear through the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, it is the Word of God, and He's telling you very clearly that it's time to move on, it's time to get out of kindergarten, it's time to get out of t-ball, it's time to stop drinking milk and start eating solid food this morning, Right. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to be in the first... Eight verses. And as you're turning there this morning, I've got to give you this warning that Hebrews chapter 6, the first six, or excuse me, the first eight verses um, are what some scholars consider one of the hardest passages to interpret, right? They will say that this passage in, in the book of Hebrews is probably the hardest to figure out, the hardest to interpret uh, in the whole book of Hebrews. And some scholars will tell you this is the hardest passage of Scripture in all of the New Testament, right? So if you can conquer this one, then you're doing really well. And so the reason I love this passage is because it's not only giving kind of push us to maturity, but it's going to give us a chance to to see how that works. What does it look like? to grow in maturity, and how do we deal with a difficult passage like that? And so it's this exercise not only to be pushed to maturity, but this exercise in how we demonstrate that, how we grow in that, right? And I got to tell you, there's a lot of well-meaning Christians who have looked at this passage and come up with a very different understanding of it, right? And for some of you, you may grew up in a different um, denomination, a different tradition that taught a very different version of this passage. And so my goal in my prayer, is we look in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, is I'm telling you I'm giving you this warning for two reasons one I want you to stay with me through it all okay don't don't fall asleep on me hang with me through the whole thing because I want to make sure that when we leave here everybody here and everybody watching online that we all leave here with a right understanding of what this passage really says and what it really means The other thing I want us to do is have this idea of this is how we work through a hard passage, and we can do that with other passages on our own. So when you are reading your Bible and you come across a difficult passage, how is it that you deal with that? How do you figure out what they're trying to say? And so now that I've terrified you of this passage, let's go ahead and dive into it in Hebrews chapter 6, reading the first eight verses. Verse 1 says, Therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washing, laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. Verse 4. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word, and the power of the coming age. And who have fallen away because of their, to, excuse me, because to their own harm, they have re-crucified the Son of God and holding him to up to contentment. For the ground that has drunk the rain that has often fallen on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those that it cultivates for receiving a blessing from God, but if it produces thorns and thistles. It is worthless and about to be cursed, and will be burnt at the end. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. God, I pray that we meant every word of the song that we just sang. God, that here is our heart. God, that we give it to you so that you may speak words of truth to us this morning. God's words of truth that God may not be comfortable words for us. God, words of truth that may convict us and words of truth that may hurt us and harm us and make us uncomfortable, Father. But they are all the true nonetheless, Father. And so, God, I pray that we meant what we sang. God, here is our heart. And beyond our heart, God, here is our mind, here is our attention, here is our focus, and here is everything that we are. God, I pray that you speak words of truth through your truth to us this morning, Father, And God, I pray that we are open to Your Word. I pray that we are listening for Your Word. God, I pray that we will hear that booming, thundering voice this morning telling us exactly what Your Word says. It's time to move on. It is time to mature. It is time to grow up and grow out, Father. And so, God, I pray that You speak. And God, I pray with all of our heart and with all of our soul and all of our mind that we listen and we obey, Father. God, prepare us for what it is that You have us in this text this morning. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen sometime this past year, my family discovered this show that we've really, really kind of called on to. We've really enjoyed it uh, quite a bit, and some of you may be very familiar with it. It's called Lego Masters, and uh, there's two seasons of it. We just finished the second season, and at least that's only two seasons I know it. I'll be honest with you, we never watch shows when they're produced or when they come out. We're always like the, the Netflix or the Hulu people that catch them like two weeks later or like months or years later. Um, so I don't know when these things were, were uh, there, but for some of you... It's it's you know the show very well but every week during Lego masters there's this new challenge that these two these teams uh, there's a pair of them uh, a pair of people on each team and they have to build something out of Legos. Obviously, that's the name, right? So there's something they've got to build, and every challenge is new. Every week is something different. They've got to build something new and something creative, and there's these different themes they have to work with, and sometimes they have to come up with these crazy things like it's got to withstand an earthquake, or it's got to withstand a windstorm, or it's got to withstand a thousand pounds, and all these crazy things that they have to do, and they all have to build out of Legos. And I'll be honest with you, I've watched this show, and, and it's, it's pretty amazing some of the things that they come up with. Some of the creative ideas that they build, and some of the creative uh, ways they work Legos together. And I'll be honest with you, I, when I grew up, Legos were like little squares. That's all they were. Maybe little rectangles, and, and that's all Legos were. right? And now they've got all these shapes and pieces and all these different parts, and you can make like all this amazing stuff out. And we didn't have that, but there's one episode... And They really kind of stood out to me as I was working through this passage, and I don't remember how old it was. I don't know. Like I said, we watched it a few weeks ago, but it could have been a year old or whatever. Uh, But the challenge in this particular episode was that they had to build a castle, right? Now, that doesn't sound hard if you're going to build a castle out of Legos because it's blocks, right? Except this castle had to be built literally on the side of a cliff, right? So what they had is they literally had this wall, and you had to build your castle stuck to the side of this cliff. Except the trick is that the Legos that you're building onto are not the side that you stick to. They're the flat side, right? with a few exceptions. And so they, the, when they gave them this challenge, they told them they're going to be judged on two criterias. The first criteria is they wanted something that looks good. If you're going to build a castle, you've got to make it look good. So the first thing they're going to judge on is appearance. They want it to be creative. They want to be, they're always about the stories that you tell with your recreations and all that. So they wanted something that was going to be looking good, something that was going to appear nice, something that would kind of catch their eye and catch their, their creative ability. And so they were looking to show off their creative sense. But the second criteria they were looking for was they wanted to see which team could build furthest out from the wall. Okay, So if you imagine, this is the wall, and they wanted to see which team could build out further than any other team. That was criteria number two. Well, I guess it technically it was number one, because the team that built furthest from the wall right, automatically moved on to the finals. So I wanted to show you one picture of one of the castles that was built. Right? This is one of them. And be honest with you, this is not the one who won. Okay, this is not the winning castle. They didn't build the furthest out, right? So you can kind of see that flat wall, that's their cliff back there. And then you had to literally build the castle out from that wall, all right? And now the winning team was able to build out six feet from that castle or from that cliff wall, right? Now, this may surprise you. That's bigger than me, okay? So if I laid down and my feet hit that cliff, my head would still not reach the end of their creation. Okay. This one's not quite six feet. It's just a little less than that. But the winning team was able to build out six feet from the wall. Right? And, and here's the, this is the part that, that I loved about this whole thing. That massive creation is only connected to that wall by ten little bitty points. Okay? So there are literally ten little half Legos. And when I say half Legos, you know Legos come in like there's two rows on each one of them. And so a half of Lego, there, is one, there are ten little half Legos sticking out of that wall. Which means that whole thing is held up by 10 little bitty points that just have one little dot on that Lego. All the rest of it is within the wall itself, all right? And so they had to build this massive creation. They had to build all the way, not just right there, but all the way out, hinging and hanging on these ten little connection points. And they had these ten points, and they had to build out from there. And they had to build this impressive, massive structure. And it shocks me that it's just held up by these ten little points. And so that one you can kind of see at the bottom. There's They built on the kind of the curves and the connection points. So there was some engineering and all this, this uh, thought that went into this. But I want you to understand... These ten little points, these were the foundation of everything. These were the essential foundations that you had to connect everything to. And you had to make sure these connections were right. And all ten points had to be exactly right. This was your elementary foundation that the whole thing was built on and projected out from these ten little points. And so as we get to chapter 6... In the beginning of this difficult passage, the writer starts off, and he starts off talking kind of the same idea about these elementary foundations that are built into our faith, except he tells us that our job is not to hold on to these, it's to build out from these. There are some foundations, and these foundations are established, they're there, but we don't need to stay there. And so in in the first three verses, he briefly mentions three different sets of foundations. And so we're going to look at them, uh, starting in verse 1. And reading through verse 2, and and what it tells you is this is the whole thing. These foundations are kind of where the Jewish faith was. And so you're building out from those, pointing you to Christ. And so I want you to look with me in verse 1. And he says, he writes this in verse 1. He says, Therefore, leave the elementary message about the Messiah, and let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation. And then he goes on to list these six examples of the elementary foundations. And so we'll keep reading in verse 1 and finish up in verse 2. And he says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. That's one. Faith in God, that's two. And then he moves on in verse two. He says, teaching about ritual washings, three, laying on of hands, four, the resurrection of the dead, five, and eternal judgment. Right? So there's six connection points that he gives six of these elementary foundations right now there's a lot of people that will spend a lot of time on those six points in fact if we wanted to we could probably have a whole sermon series over the next month and a half dealing with each one of those six points but I honestly think if we did that we would miss the whole point of this passage because his point is don't dwell on these six points did you get that Let's move on from these. all right? So we're going to do that. We're going to move on from these, uh, and we're going to build on these. And so I want you to understand that I think if we dwell on these, we're going to miss the point. Because what he's telling you is that the readers, are he's telling them this is not where you should stay. And he's not telling you that these are not important things to the Christian faith. There they are, but he's telling you that there's more out there, And so move on from these six elementary things. And I really think that he's confident that his readers and you and I know what these six things are. That, that we're familiar enough with these six things that he doesn't have to go over them again. Hence, he doesn't have to relay this foundation. They're there. They're solid. Okay? And you've got to remember that he's writing to folks that really grew up Jewish and then became Christians. And so these things are solid. These things have been in their their childhood and their their worldview for a really long time. But the reason he mentions these six things is because if you look at them, honestly, none of them are distinctly Christian things. All right? I don't know if you caught on to that when we were reading over that list or not. None of them are really distinctly Christians. In fact, all of them are kind of common ground between the Jewish faith and the Christian faith. If you were talking to a Jew, you would have no problem talking about having faith in God. They they would be fine with that. Do you believe in God? Yeah, absolutely I believe in God. Any Jew would answer that question that way. Do, Do you believe you should turn away from sin? Well, yeah, sin's bad. We should all stop doing that. Any Jew is not gonna have a problem talking about turning away from sin. Right? Do you do you believe there's God? Yeah, absolutely. Do you believe in the ritual washings and the practice of laying on hands? Yeah, they got no problem with that. They've been doing that for generations. For centuries, they've been ritual washings and the priest washing, and they've been doing that for a long time. That they've been laying on hands. Anytime a priest gives a blessing to a group of people, he lays his hands on them. Anytime he prays for the sick, he lays his hands on them. They've been doing that for generations. No Jew is going to have any problem with any of those six things that he mentioned. Even if we get to the kind of the futuristic stuff that he mentions of the the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. They don't have any problem with God judging folks. They know God is going to judge folks. They know there's going to be this resurrection. And so they don't have any problem with all six of these things or kind of this common ground between the jews and the christian and really they're kind of common if you look at them most of them are common but not just between jews and christians but really between christians and all other religious beliefs you ask anybody who's got any religious beliefs that they believe in god yeah i got faith in god no problem do you have certain practices that you do the ritual washings and the laying on of hands yeah they may look different but yeah we got those things do you believe there's something beyond this life yeah we believe that that's not a problem And so I want you to understand and remember that the guys writing to these Jewish people who grew up Jewish, and they grew up in the Jewish faith, and then they became Christians. And when they did that, they suddenly found themselves with this immense amount of pressure and persecution from their whole community. Their whole community they grew up in is suddenly looking like, whoa, you've gone too far. You've switched over. Something is different about you now. And not only just the community they grew up in, but really their family. Because it wasn't just that you, you grew up, this was your identity, this was who your family was. And so for some of them, their the pressure and persecution really came from within their own family. And so to make life easier for them, what they do? We're just going to hang on to these common ground practices. We're just going to build right on the very edge of the cliff. We're going to be saved enough to be saved, but we're just going to stay on that little connection point. We're not going to move too far out. We're just going to stay right here. Because if we just stay right here, then from the right angle, or maybe from a long enough distance, you really can't tell if I'm off the cliff or if I'm in the cliff. You can't tell if I moved to a Christian faith or if I haven't moved to the Christian faith. Right? And so what we can do is to, to eliminate some of the pressure, to eliminate some of the per- persecution, is we can go to church on Sunday and then blend in with the rest of the family and the rest of the week we can act like they do as well. And so that way there's no questions, there's no trouble, and we can just blend in just like everybody else. And so I really think that we link back to the, the Lego Master example that I was talking about a while ago. These are the folks that he's talking about. He's not talking about building out from that kingdom. What he's talking about is you folks you are standing on those connection points. You, 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 you got those connection points. You're off the cliff, but that is as far as you made it. There was no building out from there. You are standing just right on that connection point because the truth is that you really don't want to stick out too far from the cliff. You're there, but you're not there very far. You got saved, but that was as far as you made it. In fact, the distance, and from the angle, man, you could be just like everybody else. And so we sometimes find ourselves... In this comfort zone because it's easier there because the further you get from the wall, the further you get from the cliff, the further you get from the common ground is where you start to feel the most weight and where you start to feel the most tension. And so I want you to hear what he's telling his readers and what he's telling us this morning. It's time to move on. It's time to move out from the wall. Let's go on to maturity so that way the people around us can see and they can know that without a shadow of a doubt, there's a difference between what I believe and what everybody else is saying. Listen, you've got to understand there's a major problem when we want to blend in with the world more than we want to stand out from the world. There's a problem when people can't distinguish our faith from any other faith out there. There's a problem when we live our faith and express our faith in a way that everybody says, well, all religions worship the same God, right? All roads lead to the same place, right? There's a problem when we can't distinguish and others can't distinguish from the way we live our life, the way we work and what we believe, that there's not just this same thing. See, but too many of us want to stand on the common ground and we don't want to build out from there. We don't want to go out to this and when people look at us like, oh, that's sticking out. That's standing out. That's completely different than what is the wall looks like. We find ourselves spending so much time on the common ground and not moving to maturity that we're not trying to grow. We're not trying to distinguish ourselves in our Christian faith from any other faith, and worst of all, really from no faith at all. Let me ask you this question If your coworkers, your family, your friends, can they tell a literal difference between you and someone who is not sitting in a church this morning? Can they tell a difference in the way you live your life and what you believe than someone who went to synagogue yesterday or someone who went to the Muslim temple this morning? Can they tell a difference in the way you live your life and what you do in your life and what you believe than any other faith that is out there or worse, no faith at all? And if the answer is no, then what he's telling you is it's time to build out from the wall. Because if everything in your life is common to every other religion or no religion at all, you're just... Reliving the foundations again and again and again. And again, and you are standing in a common ground. And you're never going to move out from that unless you choose to. You're never going to experience all that God has to offer in the Christian life if you're standing on the connection points instead of building out from that common ground. And if you need to build out. You need to move on. And you need to move out to maturity so that people can see the difference, so that others can see the difference as well. You see, an immature faith, which is what we've talked about last week and this week, will never allow you to build out. An immature faith will always keep you close to the wall. An immature faith will never allow you to experience the fullness and the beauty that is out there in the Christian life because we're too busy standing back here in our comfort zone, in our safe zone, in, in the, the common ground where everybody agrees and nobody gets upset and we just all, work, we all do the same thing. And we're too busy relaying this foundation over and over and over again instead of moving on to maturity. And i got to tell you, that the writer of Hebrews says, listen, it's time. It's time that you move on. It is time that we grow up, and it's time that we move our faith in such a direction that everybody sees a very distinct difference. Because the further you get from the common ground, the easier it is to pick out that person is different. What they believe is different. How they live their life is different than anything else. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling us, it's time. It's time to move on. It's time to mature. It's time to grow up and grow out of the wall. It's time that we stop holding on to the common ground and move out in our faith so that everybody can see. Because if we don't, there's a really... Big danger when we choose not to. When we choose to continue to live in an immature faith, when we continue to lay the foundation over and over and over again. You see, verses one through three tell us this is what it is, and verses four through six tell us this is the danger of not doing that. Right. And so, in verses four through six, this I warned you at the beginning. This is the passage that is most difficult. Right. This is the this is where the difficulty really starts to hit. It's really not in the first three verses. Most people are okay with those, but when we get to verse 4 through 6, this is where it gets hard. And this is also where the exercise of how do we deal with this hard passage come into play. And because I got to tell you, there are a lot of folks that have debated verses 4 through 6. There are books, volumes of books written on verses 4 through 6. Huge theological debates have wrecked denominations on verses 4 through 6. And i got to be honest with you that some of you may have grown up in some of those denominations that that have well-meaning people but bad theology, and they spread that theology, and it took root in their church and took root in people's hearts. And some of you are living this morning with the fear that verse 4 through 6 tells you that you're going to lose it all one day, that there's a point in your life that you're never going to get it back. And so I want to tell you that first thing I want to do is I want to read through these verses And then I want to show you how to work through these verses. And so, at the end, we're going to reach a conclusion about these verses. All right? So, if you're a note taker, there's not an ABC in your little um, outline on the bulletin this morning, but there's going to be an ABC on the screen because I'm going to give you three things we do when we encounter a hard passage of Scripture. When you read a passage of Scripture and you're like, Is this really saying what I think it is or am I not sure what this is? So there's three things that we need to do when we encounter this one to make sure that we have the right interpretation of this scripture. So I want to read them first. Verse 4 all the way through verse 6. Verse 4, it says, For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts, become companions with the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, Tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age. Verse 6, and who have fallen away because of their own, excuse me, because of their own heart, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding up for or holding up to contentment. Right? And the one thing we have to do when we encounter a difficult passage, the first thing we have to do is we have to let that passage speak for itself. Okay, And that sounds very simple. We have to resist the temptation to add to that passage what it doesn't say. And we also have to resist the temptation to take anything away from that passage that is there. So we have to allow the passage to speak for itself. That's the first thing we have to do when we encounter a hard passage. So I want to show you what I mean in verses 4 through 5. The, the writer, in verses 4 through 5, he gives this characteristics of people he's talking about. Right? He says, the, the people I'm talking about were enlightened, okay, which is typically a way to describe someone who has stepped out of darkness into the light of the gospel. Right? So if you're enlightened, it typically means that you have been not only exposed to the gospel, but you responded to the gospel. And then he says, They have tasted the heavenly gifts. They became companions with the Holy Spirit. They tasted God's good word. Right? And it goes on from there. But i got to tell you, when I read that list... It is very hard for me to imagine him describing a non-Christian that way. It's very hard for me to put that in the way that he would describe or or for for me to see him describing someone who's not a Christian that way. Because when he describes someone who has been enlightened, every other time in Scripture, it's someone who's responded to the gospel. When he talks about someone who's a companion with the Holy Spirit, it is really just that. Someone who is close to and dwelling with the Holy Spirit. Literally, part of the Holy Spirit is within them. So it's very hard for me to look at that and say, well, that's not a Christian. That he's describing. And I only bring that point up because there are a lot of great scholars out there and, and very well-respected teachers and preachers that will tell you that this passage is not describing general or genuine Christian people. Right? What they're telling you is he's describing people who are like Christians, he's describing those who are. Close to Christians, he's describing those who are maybe even living in a Christian world. They're living a Christian life. They're in the Christian community, and they do all the Christian stuff. But they're really not genuine believers. Okay, and so there will folks that will tell you that's what he's talking about. He's talking about folks that act like Christians, but they're not really believing Christians. And the problem I have with that interpretation is that when I read verses 4 through 5, and really, yeah, verses 4 through 5, I don't see the word act anywhere in there. It doesn't say that they acted like they were enlightened. It doesn't say they acted like they tasted God's good word. It doesn't say they acted like they received the heavenly blessing. It doesn't say they acted like companions of the Holy Spirit. The word acted is not there at all. It says they were enlightened. They were companions. They became companions of the Holy Spirit. Not that they acted that way. They tasted the heavenly gifts. Not that they acted like they did. And so I'm convinced and I, I believe 100% that what he's describing is 100% genuine Christian believers in this passage. Not, there's, there's no indication that he's describing someone who acts Christian, but really is not. And so we have to let the text speak for itself. The second thing we have to do when we encounter a really difficult passage, is we have to make sure we get to the meanings of the words that are used within that passage. Okay, And let me tell you what I mean on this one. Because in verse 6, he uses this phrase, for those who have fallen away. All right? Now the difficulty in verse 6 is that he uses a word in the Greek for falling away that is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Okay, so typically when we encounter a word that we're not exactly sure what it means, we cross-reference it. Some of you have cross-reference Bibles. You maybe have never used them, but they're a great little tool. Okay? and Some of you have them, and, and, and let me you, you don't even have to have a cross-reference Bible anymore. You can just go to uh, BibleGateway.com or Bible.com, and it's there. I mean, the tools are there. It's so simple. But what you do is you cross-reference, means you look for where else in the Bible is that word used. And if it means this here, and it means this here, and it means this here, then guess what it means over here? The same thing, okay? And so what, he's tell- what we tell you is make sure you get to the meaning of that word. Does it mean what we think it means? The difficulty with this word is that we can't cross-reference within the New Testament because it doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. Nowhere else does any author within the New Testament use the word that he uses here. So we have to look outside the New Testament. What did other people understand him to mean? When he used this word in the first century, when he wrote this, what did those people understand that this word meant? And so we have to look outside the New Testament. We have to look for other writers, even beyond Scripture, that wrote this word. And so when we look at those... And by the way, there's great tools online that can help you do that. There's great tools that you can do word studies and things like that within the New Testament and without the Testament. But when you look at this outside the New Testament, outside the Bible, what you find it literally means to fall beside or fall to the side. Okay? That's really all it means. You fell beside something or you fell to the side of something. All right? And so now I I tell you that because there are a lot of folks that will tell you this word means it's describing someone who gives up their Christian faith, someone who renounces their Christian faith, or it describes someone who sins so much that they lost their salvation. Now there's a couple problems with that idea. The first problem is the language that is used and the language that's not used in this passage. You see, the author, if the author intended to describe people who renounce their faith, if, if that's what he's looking for, if he's, if he's looking to describe people who sinned so much, they rebelled so much against God that God cut them off, there's a word for that. Okay? It's called apostate, and it is used in the New Testament. Okay? It's used in a completely different context, and it used, it's actually used twice in the Bible. Once in the Old Testament, excuse me, once in Acts, describing what happened with Moses. And the other one is in the New Testament, or in the book of Thessalonians, and it's describing what's going to happen at the end times. This falling away from church, not from Christ. Okay? And so I want you to understand that if he was describing folks that renounced their faith, or the, the popular word today is they deconstructed their Christian faith. I don't know if you've heard that online or not, but there's a lot of folks who are deconstructing their Christian faith. You can't deconstruct something you didn't build in the first place. It's all, and I'm going to get off that point because I'm... I'm going to stick with this text here. But here's the thing. If he was meaning to describe someone who renounces their Christian faith, someone who was genuinely Christian and then said, I don't want to do this anymore, I don't believe this anymore, then he could have used the word apostate, but he didn't. If he wanted to describe someone who sinned so much, gave themselves so far deep into rebellion that, that they couldn't come back, he could have used a different word, but he didn't. And so what that tells me that in this passage, he's not describing someone who defects or departs or revolts or rebels because he could have used a different word. And the Holy Spirit knew that word for sure, and he could have given him that understanding. Which brings us to the third thing that we have to do when we encounter a difficult passage is we have to consider it within the context of that passage of Scripture. Right? What is he talking about before this passage? And what is he talking about in Scripture as a whole? So we look at the context of the passage. means we zoom out a little bit. We, we stop focusing so much on one little verse. And we zoom out and we see what is he talking about in the big picture. And then what are we talking about in Scripture as a whole? And so you got to remember something we talked about in our Wednesday night class, we just started this Wednesday night class about end times. And there's so many folks that, that jump into just one little passage of Scripture. And one of the things I reminded them on Wednesday night is that every word of every sentence, or excuse me, every word in the Bible is part of a sentence. Every sentence in the Bible is part of a paragraph. Every paragraph in the Bible is part of a book. And every book is part of the Scripture as a whole. So when you read every word and every sentence, make sure you put it in the right picture. All right. Make sure it fits in the right context of what it is, that you're not just kind of moving this around, moving that over here. And so we got to kind of look at what is he talking about. And the reason, or what he's talking about in the Scripture is the same thing he's been talking about. He's talking about it in the first part of the verse, or chapter 6, and he's also talked about it in the last part of chapter 5. He is talking about the subject of this is growing and maturing in our faith that we already have. There's no mention of salvation in this text whatsoever. There's no, salva- no mention of salvation in the passages that is here, the passage that is right before this, or the one that's right before that. So I want you to imagine how hard it would be to follow someone who jumped from this topic to this topic and then to this topic. People don't write that way and people don't talk that way, at least not the ones that we listen to or the ones that we follow. The Holy Spirit's not going to throw confusion on us like that. So he's going to hold this line of thought. He's going to continue this discussion. And the thing he's discussing is maturity within our faith, not losing our faith. And so I want you to notice also, he doesn't say it's impossible to renew to salvation. Salvation is never mentioned in this passage. It's never mentioned in the passage beforehand. What he's saying is it's impossible to renew to repentance those who have fallen away. And so we consider the context of our interpretation. It's got to fit the conversation that's going on. The conversation in this passage is sanctification, not salvation. Right, and, and so we we can add to that the context of Scripture as a whole. Right, and I'm going to put three or four verses on the screen here. Now we're not going to look all of them up because we don't have time to look all of them up. But uh, hopefully you'll jot these down: John chapter five, verse twenty four; Romans chapter eight, verse thirty eight; Romans chapter eleven, verse twenty nine. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. And hopefully you jot those down. You can go back and look all of those up later. But in the context of Scripture as a whole, there are tons of passages that teach us this is not a salvation question. This is a sanctification question. Simply because once we have salvation, we are eternally secure. All those four passages, plus probably twice that many more, teach us that once we have salvation, we never, ever lose it. And so it brings us back to this question. If he's not talking about fake Christians, and he's not talking about genuine Christians losing their salvation, then what in the world is he talking about? So we, we've we kind of dealt with the Scripture. We, we've let it speak for itself. We've went to the wording of Scripture. We've looked at the context of what it is. And so now we come to the point where we actually figure out what he's talking about. And so I'm I'm... I'm Along these lines, that here's what we're talking about. We're not talking about uh, losing your salvation. Well, we're simply talking about the same thing we've been talking about. We're talking about not maturing to the point that you lose a reward or you lose fulfillment in Christ. You see, you can fall away into sin, and you can sin to the point where your life doesn't reflect, it doesn't look like it's supposed to, it doesn't make any difference in your life whatsoever. You can sin to the point where your life doesn't reflect Christ. In fact, your life shames Christ. It disgraces the sacrifice that he made for you. That's what he's talking about when he talks about um, re-crucifying him or holding him in contempt. And it doesn't mean that we lose our salvation. It simply means that we lose the rewards that we should be working for. Means we lose the rewards that we could be earning in heaven. If you want a picture of that in Scripture, go back to the Old Testament when the Hebrews were getting ready to enter in the Promised Land and they kept sinning, they kept turning their back on God, they kept distrusting God, and yet there's a whole generation that loses their reward of going in the Promised Land. Now, they didn't stop becoming God's people. He didn't cut the relationship off with them. They kept their relationship, albeit on their part it was a terrible relationship, but God was faithful. He kept their, uh, his part of the relationship. He never cut that off. He, they never stopped being God's people. But this whole generation, they missed out on the promises of the reward. They could have been in the, uh, in the uh, promised land a whole generation before, but they didn't. Why? Because they didn't mature in their faith when they should have. And so when he says it's impossible to renew to repentance, we have this idea that repentance is always turning from sin and turning to God. And that's true. But repentance in and of itself simply means that you turn from one thing to another. Right? And so what he's telling us in this scripture is that it is impossible to turn from sin and turn to a reward that you missed out on because you weren't living a life that you should have been living. Right? Because if you didn't grow up and you didn't mature in your faith, then you missed out on opportunities to build up for yourself treasures in heaven. Go back to what we talked about in chapter 5. For some of us, we didn't mature in our faith, and we should have been teachers, and we missed out on the opportunity to be teachers, which means we missed out on the opportunity to make disciples, which means we missed out on the opportunity. When we get to heaven, somebody's going to walk up and be like, listen, I'm here today because of what you taught me in Sunday school. I'm here today because of what you taught me about this. Some of us didn't grow up in our faith to the point we matured enough that we shared Christ, and we miss out on the opportunity that when we get to heaven, somebody's going to walk up and be like, hey, the only reason I'm here is because you taught me the Word of God. And we're going to miss the reward that comes with that. And what he's telling you is that once you've missed that opportunity, you don't get to go back and get it again. You only have one chance to do some of the things that are here on this earth. And so you only have one chance to build up these treasures, to teach others, to make this difference. And once you miss those opportunities because you love sin so much, you cannot turn back and you can't go back and you can't get them. It's impossible to turn back and get those rewards once we miss them because we chose immaturity. We chose to be comfortable. We chose to stand next to the wall rather than build out from the wall. And so the truth is we only have one chance in this life. And the question in the context of this passage is, what are we going to spend that life doing? Are we going to spend it chasing a productive maturity in Christ? Or are we going to spend it in this worthless sin and immaturity? You see, the author ends this passage of Scripture giving this, this illustration of a field or a garden. He says in verse 7, he says, For the ground that has drunk the rain, that has often fallen on it, and that produces vegetation useful, to those it is cultivated for receiving a blessing from God. He's describing this ground that took what was given to it. The ground didn't do anything. Okay, It just took the rain. It took what was worked in it, and it produced something. Right? So you have the blessings. You have the tools that God's given you. And you can mature in them, and you can produce fruit. And if you do that, you will be blessed. You will have eternal reward. And then in verse 8, he gives the opposite of it. In verse 8, he says this is what happens if you don't. Verse eight he says, but if it produces thorns and thistles. Right? So understand, this ground got the same rain, had the same opportunities, but it didn't produce vegetation, it produced thorns and thistles. It is worthless and about to be burned and it will be cur- or excuse me, it's about to be cursed and will be burned at the end. And there's this beautiful connection between here and what Paul writes in First Corinthians chapter three, verse thirteen through fifteen. You see, the interesting thing is the topic of First Corinthians 13 is exactly the same excuse me, not 13. First Corinthians three is exactly the same that he's writing here in Hebrews. It is this idea of not growing up, this idea of always drinking milk and never eating meat, this idea of not maturing beyond where you are right now. And the topic is the same, and he ends kind of the same way, and he has this beautiful picture, and he says in Romans, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13 through 15, he says, "For each one's work will become obvious for the day. That is the end. It will disclose it. because it will be revealed by fire, the fire that will test the quality of each one's work. If one's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward." Verse 15. "If anyone's work is burnt up, it will be lost. but He will be saved. Yet it will be like an escape through. So when we put these two passages together next to each other, we see that maturity produces or makes us productive. And it makes us productive in things that will last through fire. It makes us productive in things that will last for all eternity. It makes us productive in things that really do make a difference, not just in this world, but in God's economy. It makes us productive and mature in things that will last for all eternity versus things that won't last forever. You see, (laughs) When we grow and mature in faith, it makes us productive in rewards that we will have forever. Not in the things that are temporary, or the things that don't matter for eternity, not in the things that, that, that ultimately will be judged as worthless. See, there's a whole lot of us who aren't maturing in our faith. And part of the reason is because we're pursuing stuff that at the end is going to be worthless. And I share with you that from my heart this morning that when you get to heaven, you're not going to be judged on how many home runs you hit in the T-ball league when you were 38 versus the five-year-olds. When you get to the end of your life, you're not going to be judged on how many A's you made in kindergarten or how many home runs even you hit in the big leagues. The things that are going to matter the most are how you matured in your faith and how you use that to produce vegetation, to produce fruits so that other people could see the difference between what you believe and what everybody else believed. So the challenge of this verse for you and for me is simply this. Are you willing to go on to maturity? Are you willing to go beyond the simple common ground of religion and, and simply stand out as a Christian? Are you willing to stand up and stand out in such a way that, that you are actively producing and building on God's kingdom? Are you simply going to come in yet another Sunday, listen to another sermon, and walk out of here and soak in a little bit of rain, but walk out of here and still produce thorns and thistles. Walk out of here the exact same way, refusing to mature, refusing to the rewards and blessings that could come with maturity. You only get one shot at it. And if you don't do it, you don't get a chance to turn back and do it again. Let's pray together.